Got a question for the kids this morning. What is the most difficult beast in the world to tame? The most difficult beast in the world to tame. Any ideas? Any thoughts? Right here. A lion. A lion. Let's see if I have a picture of a lion. Let's see what I got here. All right, there's a, a wolf. His, not the lion's not it, but, but neither is the wolf. Okay, I put a wolf up here, but it's not a wolf. Any other ideas? The most untamable beast in the world, in the universe. Sin. <laughs> Very good. Very good. I knew I should have called on younger children. Good. Um, close. Yes. But let me, let me push my point here. All right. What? what? Tiger? Tongue. Oh, man, you, you, you're too smart. Yes, the tongue. It's not the wolf or the tiger or the bear or the shark. I've never heard anybody trying to tame a shark. It's not any of those things. It is this thing right here. In each and every one of our mouths. James says this in James chapter 3, beginning of verse 6. The tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Today's passage that we're looking at in the Sermon on the Mount has everything to do with that little beast in our mouth, that tongue. For today's passage simply boils down to this. I'll give you the main point of what Jesus is saying right here at the beginning. And that is that kingdom citizens, the followers of Jesus, must be people who have tongues that speak words of truth. Please turn now, if you would, to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to start today in verse 33, and we'll read through verse 37. We're continuing to study the Sermon on the Mount as part of a chronological walk through the life of Jesus in a series that we have entitled, Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ. Now, I'll remind you that the Sermon on the Mount is a sermon that Jesus delivered to his disciples. There were others listening in, but it is essentially a sermon, as we've said before, by King Jesus for kingdom citizens about Kingdom living. And so Jesus here is giving his disciples, as we read this, a word about how they should speak. What should come out of their mouths. Now this is important for us to remember. After Jesus has given to his disciples what it looks like to be a kingdom system, the kingdom traits, which were the Beatitudes, Jesus had begun to talk now about how kingdom citizens relate to the law of God. And he first taught us that he came to fulfill the law and the prophets, the entire Old Testament, and that all the scriptures are accomplished in him. But by no means was Jesus abolishing or setting aside the law. Instead, Jesus elevates the law to its proper meaning and calls on us to have a righteousness or a law-keeping 
greater than that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now Jesus clearly isn't teaching that law-keeping earns us anything with God, but instead that once we are kingdom citizens, we should be people who love God's law and obey it. And he's calling on us to have a law-keeping, a righteousness greater than the most religious people of his day. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means that our adherence to God's law must be from the heart. Not merely external rule-keeping like that of the Jewish leaders. So that means that kingdom citizens don't merely stop short of physically murdering someone, but instead realize that the heart of murder is anger and contempt and malice. It means that kingdom citizens don't merely stop short of physical acts of adultery, but instead realize that the heart has adulterous, lustful desires in it. This means that kingdom citizens don't merely view divorce as a disappointing but valid way out of marriage, but instead realize that the heart of marriage is one man with one woman bonded together forever. That's the heart. The kingdom citizen therefore knows that the law of God must be kept from the heart and those who are brought into the kingdom must be given new hearts. And so we come to today's text and in light of Jesus just finishing speaking on the heart of murder and the heart of adultery, this issue that he addresses here today in this text may seem on the surface as a light matter in comparison. But I'll remind you just as what we read from James a minute ago, what Jesus has to say here about our mouths and what we say is certainly no light matter. So please stand now, if you would, as we read these words of our Lord Jesus from Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 33, reading through verse 37. We stand in the honor of the reading of God's word, and this is Jesus speaking directly to us, as well as those who were gathered around him there on that mountain on that day. Verse 33 begins, Again, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes, Or no, anything more than this comes from evil. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, honestly, I don't think that we believe that white lies or half-truths or exaggerations come from evil. I think we just assume it's the way you operate In the world. Forgive us of our sin and cause us to see the gravity here, the weight of Jesus' words this morning. We pray that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes to what Jesus has to say. We pray that you would give me, Lord, a mouth to speak and you will get all the honor and the glory. Keep us from any error this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I think it's pretty safe to say that we live in a culture that has a bit of a crisis of truth. Not only do we live in a postmodern culture where the the very concept of truth philosophically is challenged, but on a more practical level, we have a truth crisis in our culture. We have a truth crisis in marriages. I don't think it's a coincidence that Jesus 
right after he talks about marriage, follows it up with a point about speaking truthfully. For he knows that lies and deception are at the core of what destroys marriages. We have a crisis of truth in politics, right? I mean, spin rules the day. Long gone are the days of Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln once said this while he was on the campaign trail. He said, I am not bound to win, but I am bound to be true. I am not bound to succeed, but I am bound to live by the light that I have. And later, regarding the American people, Abraham Lincoln said this, I have a firm belief in the people. If given the truth, they can be depended upon to meet any national crisis. Hmm. Long gone are those days. Politicians today spin and work their rhetorical magic to unsay things they said and to wiggle out from underneath the promises that they once made. We have a truth crisis in sports. Professional athletes don't honor multi-million dollar contracts. And then when they cheat with performance-enhancing drugs, we're somehow surprised. There was no truth in their mouth in the first place. We have a truth crisis in entertainment. Surprise, surprise. In a surprisingly frank interview with New York Magazine, Lady Gaga, and it pains me to even say that name. What a silly name. Lady Gaga said, What I've discovered is that in art, as in music, there is a lot of truth, and then there's a lie. The artist is essentially creating his work to make this lie a truth. But then he slides it in amongst all the others. The tiny little lie is the moment I live for. My moment is the moment the audience falls in love with. How's that for a pretty candid admission of depravity right there? We have a truth crisis, friends, in the church. A prominent pastor has his ministry buy up 200,000 copies of his book so that it will artificially inflate his sales numbers on the New York Times bestseller list so that he can be touted as a best-selling author. And it's chalked up as merely ministry tactics. Churches give invitations using bait-and-switch techniques akin to door-to-door vacuum cleaner salesmen. And pastors live lives so contradictory to that of our Lord Jesus that the clergy, unfortunately, is now listed along with car salesmen, politicians, lawyers, and bankers as one of the most untrustworthy professions in America. We have a crisis of truth in our culture. There was a crisis of truth in Jesus' day, too. It's not that the Jewish people didn't know that God took truth seriously. They knew the ninth commandment, Exodus 20, verse 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And they knew that God hated falsehood, Proverbs 6, beginning in verse 16. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among the brothers. Isn't it interesting that lying and dishonesty is mentioned twice in the list of seven things that are an abomination to our Lord. The Jews of Jesus' day, they knew God's law, but they were experts at making new laws to circumvent and reinterpret old laws in ways that would allow them to get out from underneath the actual intent and heart and spirit of the law. 
and thereby they justified their sin. They were crafty, but so are we. In today's text, we read that Jesus says in verse 33, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Now, Jesus here is not giving us an exact Old Testament quotation, but is giving us a summary of what the Old Testament teaches regarding truthfulness. In particular, he is talking about truthfulness as it relates to swearing oaths and making vows. Certainly the ninth commandment, which I just mentioned a minute ago, is being referred to here by Jesus, but there's more than that. Leviticus 9, verse 12, says, You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. So it's more than just truth. It's about connecting what we say to God's name. Numbers 30, verse 2, it says, If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds from his mouth. So we have these, but also Jesus here, as I alluded to just a minute ago, is referring to the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now we think about the third commandment, And we usually think that it's referring simply to using God's name as an expletive or something like that. And certainly that's included in this prohibition. But the Old Testament perspective was that a person was not supposed to swear by God's name falsely. One was not to use God's name in a vain way, meaning they were not to swear or make an oath by it and then end up failing to keep that oath. This was in essence perjury in the Jewish law system. For one to swear by Yahweh but then not speak the truth or not follow through on what they had promised was to perjure himself or herself and it was to drag God's name through the mud. You can see, therefore, to the Jew, this latest point that Jesus is talking about, having an honest mouth, is just as important as adultery and murder. So this is no light matter. And there were severe consequences that came from misusing God's name. Now, real quickly, a word on vows and oaths in the ancient culture, in the ancient world. In the ancient world, an oath was a solemn invoking of God, or if it were a pagan culture, of multiple gods or a specific deity. It was the invoking of God as a witness to the truth of a statement. Vows, similarly, were promises usually made to a person or even to God. They were also sealed by invoking the name of a deity, the name of God. In the Old Testament, vows and oaths were very, very serious. They were never to be regarded as light issues. It was a very solemn and serious thing whenever you took a vow. They were never to be entered into lightly. The Old Testament in Leviticus 5.4 warns us against making rash vows with our lips. It tells us how sinful that is. Of course, we have some examples of some rash vows in the Old Testament, don't we? Can y'all think of maybe some examples of some rash vows from the Old Testament? Any come to mind? Jephthah. Jephthah was his name. He was a judge in Israel and he swore that the Lord gave him victory. He would offer up as a burnt offering the first thing that came out of his house. It was a rash vow. Now there's lots of debate on as to what actually happened. His daughter comes out of the house. Maybe he was hoping his mother-in-law would come out. I don't know. But he makes a rash vow. And his daughter comes out of the house. And then he weeps before the Lord, but he keeps his vow. Now, there's a difference of opinion here. The scholars, either he did offer up his daughter and she 
died as a burnt sacrifice, or she was then set apart and never was allowed to marry and was never really allowed to have contact with people after that because she was set apart to the Lord. Now, we're not going to debate which side of the issue I fall on that. It's, it's a hard passage to understand. But there were other ones as well. Remember, Saul makes a rash vow. In the middle of a battle against the Philistines, he said, No one shall eat until we've avenged my enemies. And he says it by the name of the Lord. No one can eat until we avenge our enemies. And what happens? Jonathan, his own son, finds some honey and eats it. And actually rebukes his dad and said, You know what? We need to be eating so that we can win this battle. That was a rash vow. David also had a rash vow that he made in 1 Samuel 25, 22. By the Lord's name, he was going to kill this guy who had insulted him. Only for the man's wife to have to come out and change his mind. So the Old Testament warns against making rash vows with our lips. Ecclesiastes 5.2 says, Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Let your words be few. But just as they had done on the issue of divorce, the Jews of Jesus' day had corrupted God's law and had sought to lessen it, to make it less binding on their consciences. And so they had created an elaborate system of oath-taking that allowed them to get around God's law. Essentially, they had figured out clever ways to get out from underneath the truth or out from underneath their obligation to follow through on what they said. Clever ways that they could make vows and not have to keep them. Clever ways to sign multi-million dollar contracts and have escape clauses. Clever ways to make campaign promises and simply say they were misunderstood. Clever ways to make prenuptial agreements that makes divorce clearly an option. You see, the oaths and the vows that God allowed and commanded in the Old Testament had become corrupted. And just as truth has become corrupted in our day. And so the oaths had become simply a means of covering up their dishonesty. Oaths have become a way to dress up one's words to make him or her seem honest. When in reality they weren't. So Jesus says to them, but I say to you. And again, he here in verse 34, but I say to you is asserting his authority over God's word. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all. Now real quickly here, and sort of as a parenthetical statement, we need to tackle that real quickly. Don't take an oath at all. What is Jesus saying here? Is he saying that we are not allowed to take an oath in court? We're not allowed to say a vow in our wedding? What's he saying here? Well, you know, there are groups that believe that that Jesus is saying, no, you can't take an oath or a vow at all, period. The Anabaptists believe that, which are the Quakers of our day. And therefore, they will not take an oath in a court of law. Now, I do not think that Jesus here is abolishing every oath. We must take care not to interpret Jesus' words in the same legalistic fashion that many of the Pharisees interpreted Old Testament law. Is Jesus forbidding all oaths? Well, Jesus is clearly prohibiting the type of oath-taking that the Pharisees are doing. Why do I say that? Why do I say that he's not abolishing all oaths, but simply this type of oath-taking that the Pharisees were practicing? Well, because the Old Testament itself doesn't prohibit oaths. Sometimes God's people are actually commanded to take oaths. Oaths were reserved for very solemn and serious occasions, like a wedding. But they were still taken. And God himself takes oaths. Read Hebrews 6. 
Jesus in the New Testament is asked to speak under oath when he's before the Jewish council and he's being tried in that false trial that was brought up so that he could be taken to the cross. They adjure him under the name of Yahweh to speak and he doesn't correct them and say, well, you know, actually, when I spoke in the Sermon on the Mount, I totally disavowed any type of oath-taking and so I'm not going to answer you. No, he answered them. He answered them and by answering them, he was taking that vow. Not only that, but we see Paul in many places in his epistles will take a vow in the name of God on behalf of the churches. And so I do not think that vows or oaths are to be abolished completely. Okay, we can still take oaths in court. We can still make vows at our weddings. We need to see this isn't a blanket statement of Jesus. We cannot be like the Quakers and create a new Phariseeism. We need to understand the context. And the context here is Jesus speaking about those who are taking oaths to appear honest, to appear sincere, to appear to have integrity. But they weren't any of these things. So Jesus is saying that if we are not people of truth, if we are not people of internal integrity, then we should not take oaths. Jesus is saying that if oaths, which were designed to encourage truthfulness, become occasions for clever lies and deceit, then don't do them at all. Now, the oath-taking Jesus speaks of here is a pathetic confession of our own dishonesty. Why do we swear on our grandmother's grave? Why does someone feel like they've got to do that? I swear on my grandmother's grave or my mother's grave or whatever. Why do they feel like they have to say that? Because it's a pathetic confession of my own dishonesty. Because you can't trust my word, I'm going to say this silly oath. It's because we know and the other person knows that our words oftentimes mean nothing. Which brings me to my first point this morning. Kingdom citizens must not be people whose word is irrelevant. Kingdom citizens must not be people whose word is irrelevant. Verse 34 again. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. As I mentioned, the Jews had become experts at deception. Their tradition was filled with ways to get around telling the truth. The Jewish rabbis would teach that one could give an oath and stop just short of invoking Yahweh's name. And therefore, his or her oath was binding by degrees, depending on what they swore upon. So they would not swear by Yahweh, but swear by heaven, or by earth, or by Jerusalem. In one of the Jewish rabbis' tractates that we have access to from back during Jesus' day, you can read that the rabbis of Jesus' day said that an oath sworn by Jerusalem wasn't as binding as an oath sworn toward Jerusalem. So you could swear by Jerusalem, and that wasn't quite as binding as actually turning and facing Jerusalem and swearing toward Jerusalem. So that's the silly type of mechanics that had been set up so that people could get around telling the truth. Okay, I guess, you know, uh, someone's asking me a favor to do something, so I'm going to swear I'll do it for them. But I need to decide how honest do I really want to be with that person. Let me get out my little list of degrees of binding to this oath of mine. Oh, okay, tell you what, I'll just swear by earth. Silly. They had the appearance of wisdom, these rabbis, but they were promoting foolishness. They were sophists. They were practicing casuistry. And in the process, their word had become irrelevant. 
totally untrustworthy. All their formulas were totally meaningless. Their word meant nothing. There was always an out. There was always a loophole. And Jesus is saying this to his disciples because he's saying we can't be like this. God's people can't be like this. We're not loophole seekers. We cannot be people whose word is irrelevant, meaningless, empty, untrustworthy. And the reason the Jews made stupid vows and silly formulas was to try to cause their hearers to think they were honest when they really weren't. But we do the same thing. Can I borrow a few hundred bucks? I'll pay you back. I swear on my mother's grave. I'll be at your ball game Friday night, son. Cross my heart. Hope to die. I'm not exaggerating. That's what happened. God is my witness. I'm not making that up. I'll swear on a stack of Bibles. Same foolishness that the Pharisees practice. And it comes out of our mouths. And sometimes without even thinking. I swear. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Are you going to be at the ball game? Yes. Are you going to return that 300 bucks? No. <laughs> you have to yes be yes and your no be no. Why can't we simply say yes or no? Why can't we be people of simple truth? It's because of our hearts. Remember, Jesus is speaking about heart issues here. This isn't just about words and formulas and how we say things. It's about a heart. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is what? Deceitful. Above all things, it's deceitful. Kingdom citizens, if we are kingdom citizens, are people with new hearts, cleansed hearts. But we still struggle with that indwelling sin, that indwelling deceitfulness. But we should desire inward truth. Psalm 51, 6, behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. That should be happening in kingdom citizens. We desire to be true from a heart. We don't want to just master the ability not to say these silly, stupid formulas. That's legalism. We want a heart that no longer desires to say these silly, stupid formulas. Kingdom citizens must be people of inward truth. We cannot be people who dress up our language to cover our deceit. We must simply be truthful from the heart. And I'll get to that a little bit more here in a second. But the second point is simply this. Kingdom citizens must not be people whose word is irreverent. Not only can our word not be irrelevant, it cannot be irreverent. Let me remind you that ultimately these deceitful practices of the Pharisees and the scribes were an essential violation of the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Now they thought they were avoiding the violation of the third commandment by not directly invoking the name Yahweh. But Jesus shows them otherwise. Let's read this again, verse 34. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. They thought they could get around God's name by invoking heaven. But Jesus reminds them of what Isaiah 66, 1 says. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne. Perhaps they say, well, heaven's a little close to God, so how about we just swear by the earth? But Jesus reminds them of the next phrase in Isaiah 66, 1. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. 
Well, they might say, well, okay, then let's just swear by Jerusalem. Heaven's kind of big. Earth's kind of big. Let's just pick one small spot on the earth. Let's swear by Jerusalem. And Jesus takes them to Psalm 48.2 and reminds them that it is the city of the great king. And the king spoken of in Psalm 48 is Yahweh. He is the great king. And ultimately his Messiah would come and reign as the great king. That's what this is all about. And so Jesus is saying you can't swear on any of these things and somehow separate it from God. They were all looking for ways to make oaths that could get away from being connected to Yahweh. And Jesus says everything is connected to Yahweh. You can't get out from under his sovereign rule. So you can't swear by anything and hope to get out from under the truth that he is the one true and faithful God. And you can't even swear by your own body. He says in verse 36, And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Ladies, you may cover up that gray hair, but you can't make it black. I'm sorry. You have no power over that. For your body, your very being, is under the sovereign sway of God Almighty. So no, the Pharisees may not have been technically violating the third commandment, but the letter of the law, the spirit of the law, they were violating every time they took a dishonest vow or an oath in the name of anything. Therefore, their words not only became irrelevant, but they became irreverent. Friends, dishonest speech is high treason against the God of truth. God's very nature is truth. Therefore, dishonesty, false speech, lies are an abomination to him and are totally irreverent. God dishonoring. For we are creatures created in the image of God, created to image forth, to shine forth truth, yet we dishonor God and are irreverent to him every time we speak of falsehood whether it be a white lie or a technicality. Friends, your white lies and your technicalities and your misspoken words or your exaggerations are all treasonous acts against a God of truth. Every one of them. And so... Every time we don't keep our word, every time we don't follow through on a commitment, every time we break a covenant bond, every time we dishonor a contract, every time we tell one person one thing and another person another thing, every time we use cloudy words that allow us to wiggle out of our commitments, every time we are using dishonest words to rationalize our situation or to glamorize our stories, we are showing treasonous irreverence toward God. We shouldn't be hard on the Pharisees. We should be hard on ourselves. Kingdom citizens cannot be people of irrelevant and irreverent words. Kingdom citizens cannot be those who hedge the truth and spin our stories. Why? Because we belong to a different tribe now. You see, all of that spin and all of that deceit, that is the fruit of a family lineage. Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 44, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. 
When he speaks lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Friends, you are either still in the family of Satan, the serpent tribe, or you are part of the family of Christ, the Jesus tribe. And if you are part of Jesus' tribe, then you've been bought, you've been redeemed, you've been called out of that kingdom of darkness. You've been brought into a kingdom of light. And the lies are now exposed in that light. And therefore, we can no longer be people of dishonesty. We can no longer be people of exaggeration. We can no longer be people of technicalities. We can no longer be people who spin things. We must be a people who want to be honest because it's written on our heart. That's who we are now. Which leads me to my last point. Kingdom citizens must be people whose word is irrevocable. That's who we've got to be. Rock solid in what we say. Verse 37. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. We are to be people of simple, irrevocable truth. Unless you think I'm pulling that family lineage thing out of nowhere, the very last phrase here in this last verse, verse 37, he says, anything more than this comes from evil can actually be translated, and I think it should be translated because of the definite article in the Greek that's right before the word evil, that anything more than this comes from the evil one. I think that's how it should be translated. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. Our mouths either speak words from the God of truth or words from the evil one. John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. Jesus is truth, and those who belong to Him speak truth. We are united to Him, and we are united to one another, and so we are truthful people who speak truth to one another. Ephesians 4.22, Put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and, it's, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Colossians 3.8. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. We have a new self being renewed in the image of our creator. Once we are in Christ, we should now be increasingly imaging God as we were created to do. Because of our union with Christ, we can now speak true and faithful words that reflect our true and faithful God. So we don't need to dress up our words. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Literally it says, let what you say be yes, yes, or no, no. Now please, don't enter into some sort of new type of sophistry here and think you've got to say yes twice or no twice, as some groups do. It amazes me that Jesus can knock down the silly Phariseeism and we go right back around and set it back up for him. It's not like you have to say no twice and yes twice. Jesus is simply using a rhetorical device here to give emphasis. It's like an exclamation point. Let your word be yes or no. Exclamation point. John Stott says, one unadorned word should be enough. Yes or no. And when a monosyllable word will do, 
Why waste our breath with adding to it? I love that. If a monosyllable word is all Jesus gives us to do, then why do we waste so much of our breath? James, the brother of our Lord, was certainly remembering these words of Jesus when he wrote in James 5, verse 12. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. But let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. And we think about the heart of dishonesty and we think about ways that we are dishonest. Sometimes a message like this can leave us feeling a little distraught. Distraught over the dishonesty in our own hearts. Distraught over the deceit that still resides there. Matthew 15, 19. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. If you're an unbeliever here this morning, you've never confessed Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the Lord alone of your life, then I pray that that distraught feeling you're feeling right now will lead you to godly remorse over sin and produce the fruit of repentance. You're under judgment, because Jesus would later say this in Matthew 12, verse 36. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. Does that verse not even cause you as a believer to shudder? Every careless word? I'm going to be standing before that throne for a while as all those words are shared. But praise be to God, I'm a believer in my Lord Jesus Christ. And when that verdict is announced, I'll be declared not guilty. Not because my words weren't bad and treasonous. They were. But because he took my punishment on the cross. Your only hope, friend, if you're an unbeliever here this morning, is to turn from your sin. Acknowledge that you need to change. Acknowledge that you need a heart transplant. Acknowledge that you have no power to do that in and of yourself. You cannot make yourself rise up, as that flyer said. You need a Savior. You may have spoken irreverent and irrelevant words, but friends, you are not irredeemable. God loves to change the spring of our heart from one that produces poisonous waters to one that flows with living water. But you must come. Come to the only one who can save you, Jesus, the man who spoke these words we studied today. Come to him, for he went to that gory, horrific cross to pay for every idle, foolish, deceitful, misleading, manipulative word that any of his people have ever spoken. Come to him, renounce your sin, turn from it, and embrace him and be cleansed. Come to him and receive his righteousness, for we read that he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. What an exchange. Jesus is offering you this morning his pure speech in exchange for your filthy mouth. What an exchange. So come, repent, believe, and be made new. Be given a new heart with new desires, with a new ability by God's Spirit, not in and of yourself, but by God's Spirit, to gain some control over that untamable beast in your mouth. If you're a believer, the distress you feel is simply the distress of a saint who recognizes his need for ongoing sanctification. You come to your Savior this morning again, friends, and ask him for the grace to keep fighting for a mouth that speaks truth. Ask him to do a work in you where his character is more manifest in you than it was before you came into the church this morning. For he is truth. 1 John 5, 20 says, 
And we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know Him who is truth. And we are in Him who is true. We are in Him who is true. United to Him. His truth is in us because we are united to Him. And so, you now have, by His grace, the ability to speak truth. Do you believe that this morning? Are you distraught this morning? Either an unbeliever or a believer. Maybe you're just distraught. Well, I just want to kind of finish with remembering a story from the Scriptures. If there was anybody that had a tendency to just sort of say things rashly, it was Peter, right? You remember Peter. He spoke rashly several times, but specifically I'm thinking when Jesus had come and told his disciples that they would all fall away. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And so Peter, along with the other disciples, is there in the garden of Gethsemane. He can't even stay awake. While Jesus is praying, and here comes all those men to come and arrest Jesus. And Peter, true to his word, takes that sword and chops off the ear of one of the servants of the high priest. And Jesus tells him to put his sword back. That's not how this was going to go down. And all of a sudden, Peter realized that following Jesus wasn't about a conquest. What about a submission and dying to self? And all of a sudden, it didn't seem so attractive anymore. And so he, like all the other disciples, broke that rash vow, and they ran. But Peter, he ran only so far as the courtyard of the place where Jesus was being put on trial. And you'll remember, he's sitting outside the courtyard, and a servant girl comes up to him and says, You, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. He denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. Then he went out to the entrance, and another servant girl saw him and said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And listen to this, verse 72. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear. I do not know the man. And we know what happened. Immediately the rooster crowed. Peter remembered what Jesus had said, that he would deny him. And Peter ran out and wept bitterly. Maybe that's how you feel this morning. You think about your words. You think about your angry words toward your spouse, your children, Your dishonest words, the way you've spun things. What you said to one person doesn't match up with what you said to the other person. And you just want to weep. Jesus came to Peter on the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee in John chapter 21 and said, Simon, do you love me? Peter says, yes. Simon, do you love me? Yes. Simon, do you love me? And that third time, Peter said this, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. With which Jesus follows up by saying, then get to work. (laughs) Feed my sheep. Quit fishing for fish and start feeding my lambs. But I bring that story up simply to say, if you're a believer here this morning, and you believe the songs we sang this morning about God being the judge of our secrets and being the defender of our hearts, then friends, 
Come to him. Repent of your idle words, of your foolish wrath vows. Even Peter, who swore and invoked a curse upon himself, was restored by our Lord Jesus with gentleness and love and mercy. Why? Because he belonged to him. Believer, and if you're an unbeliever this morning, I want you to feel that confidence, that great joy of knowing that I can come to my Savior anytime, knowing how much I've blown it yet again, and know that he continues to embrace me and say that he loves me. And tells me, get back to my kingdom work. I want you to have that joy. Believer, this morning, God knows your heart. Just as Peter said, Lord, you know everything. He has made it new. And he knows that the sin that still remains in you. And he knows that even though you are dead to it, it is not dead in you and you must kill it. So his grace is what? Sufficient for you. So fight. Fight, brother. Fight, sister. Fight that beast in your mouth. And if you're a believer, you will win that battle. If you're an unbeliever, that thing will drag you down to hell. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I really do pray this morning that there's nothing that my foolish tongue has said in this sermon that was wrong. But I know there probably is. Undoubtedly. Because I, like all the believers in this room, and still a saint in the process of being made a saint. And therefore, I struggle with my tongue. But Jesus, I pray that you would stir up strong confidence in us. That we, like Peter, have been forgiven. And we have been restored by your blood. And though we may weep bitterly, joy comes in the morning. Give us victory over our idle speech, over our foolish rash vows. Help us to be people of simple truth. Monosyllabic words. Yes. No. God, forgive me of the way I've spun things to try to make people like me this week because of the idol in my heart, that idolatrous lust that I want to be loved by men. Forgive us all of that terrible, terrible sin. And cleanse us and restore us. Make us people who are clean so that we can do your kingdom work. And Father, for any unbelievers in here this morning, Lord, I just pray, Lord, you'd penetrate their heart with these words and they'd understand that that mouth that speaks profanities is speaking that way because they are part of Satan's family. Just as the Pharisees were. Father, I pray that you'd set them free. Drag them out of that kingdom of darkness and bring them into the kingdom of light and give them a new heart. Only you can do that, Father. And so that's why we plead for you to do it. And when it happens, we only give you glory. So all glory goes to you in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.